Guys, this is the moment you have all been waiting for. Can I have some drum roll, please? Thanks! Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. I'm here with Ross O'Neill, who's the CEO and I believe co-founder of Neuromod Devices, an Irish medical device company that recently launched a new treatment for tinnitus, uh, which has been in the works for years and has been uh, clinically tested and now is on the market. So Ross, can I ask you what has been your personal experience of the past few months, you know, having worked uh, towards this for years and now having uh, the device, which is called Lanier, uh, finally on the market. What has it been like for you? Yes, yeah, so thanks, Hazel. Um, so obviously I worked on this technology as part of my PhD. So from that perspective, I'm very excited to finally, you know, make the, the device available to the, the many tinnitus uh, sufferers who are out there whose clinical needs are up to this point have been um, so very underserved. Um, tinnitus patients generally have so very few treatment options. It's great to be able to offer them an evidence-based treatment option in bimodal neuromodulation. Uh, so that's from my personal perspective. From my perspective as CEO of Neuromod, I guess um, I'm frustrated that we can't make the treatment more widely available to everyone that that is looking for it. Um, we work in a, in a in medical device space and uh, it's heavily regulated. So scaling up the availability of, of a medical device is very complex, takes a lot of time and effort. We're a small organization and we're working very, very hard, uh, but obviously we've got, we've got lots of challenges in making the device widely available, but, but we are working hard to make that happen. Um, but just at a kind of personal level, what, ha what have the past few months been like for you? Pretty busy, uh, a lot of work, uh, very little time off. Um, so I'm looking forward to Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So just can you do a quick, uh, I'm tempted to say recap, because I know a lot of the people tuning in will have already been reading about it, either on the Tinnitus Talk forum uh, or... Um, Last year in December, uh, we actually did a video Q&A with you guys that was watched over 100,000 times. So a lot of people may have seen that, um, but maybe some people are also listening that have never heard of you. So can you do a quick recap of what is Neuromod and what is Lanier? Sure. Yeah. So Neuromod is the company that I founded back in 2010. Uh, with the mandate to research, develop, clinically evaluate, and I guess ultimately commercialize bimodal neuromodulation as a treatment for tinnitus. So we developed a non-invasive home use device um, that stimulates hearing through headphones and the trigeminal nerve via the tongue using a small intraoral electrode that we call the tongue tip. The patient self-administers this treatment at home. It's 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, daily sessions, so they do that in the comfort and privacy of their of their own home. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions, obviously about um, about the device, and uh, a lot of those questions come from um, the thread that we have on the Tinnitus Talk forum about Lanier, which is our currently by far our most active thread and has been viewed over. Uh, half a million times so we got a lot of questions from there that I'll be asking you um, but maybe just to set the stage I just want to also make clear uh, yeah why we're conducting this interview um, from our side 
Uh, I guess I want to make clear that we're not promoting Lanai in any way. We don't have any, you know, commercial or financial ties with with Neuromod. But really, the sole reason we're doing this is to um, meet that need or hunger for information that tinnitus patients have, and particularly the members of the Tinnitus Talk Forum have. Uh, there are a lot of things they want to know, so we're just trying to. Um, uh, to satisfy that need um, by providing them with this uh, this interview. I don't know if there's anything you want to say from your side, Ross, about why you're doing this. Yeah, sure. Well, we we recognize the amazing work you guys are doing with Tinnitus Talk. Um, the forum is a fantastic resource for Tinnitus patients, both in terms of you know connecting with and sharing experiences with other patients, but also as a kind of a, a central source of the most up-to-date tinnitus news developments and and information. Uh, so we're very happy to do the, the podcast uh, to bring your members up to date uh, on the most recent developments around Neuromod and, and our treatment product, Linar. Right. So I'll be asking you a lot of questions that came from the forum. Uh, some of them we might have already covered during the video Q&A that we did, um, but we don't want to repeat all of that. So for those of you who want really the complete picture, I'd strongly urge you to also watch the video Q&A. Uh, on the Tinnitus Hub video channel on Vimeo or YouTube. All right, so let's start with a little bit of the sort of business and communication side of things, um, and then we can move on to the device itself. Um, so what does the market launch of a medical device actually entail? Uh, so that's a very short question with a very, very long answer. Um, I guess first you need regulatory approval. So you can't offer um, a medical device treatment without approval from the re re relevant regulatory authorities. So that would be the FDA in the US and the a combination of the notified bodies and competent authorities in, in Europe. Um, so to launch a product in Europe, uh, you, as a manufacturer, you need ISO 13485 certification, which um, I guess governs your, your capabilities as a company to produce a medical device. And then the product itself needs a CE mark. So ISO 13485 involves setting up a full quality management system under which you document absolutely everything you do. The mantra is that if it's not written down, it didn't happen. And that goes from purchasing components, you know, through supply chain traceability, software development, testing, everything. Every activity you do has to be documented and controlled under your quality management system. So you literally have to create tens of thousands of documents, uh, just basically tracing all your activities. Uh, now, this is the, I guess, the, you know, it's a heavy burden, but at the same time, it's the price that, that ensures the patients are protected. Um, so we've seen, you know, in, in at different times where that system breaks down and ultimately then it, it puts patients at risk. So it's, it's, it's kind of critical that these quality standards are maintained. CE marking then involves, um, I guess, identifying the appropriate classification for your device, uh, then demonstrating the benefits and, and that those benefits outweigh the risks. So every medical device is, is kind of approved on a benefit to risk ratio um, and it's up to the manufacturer to demonstrate that they, the benefits far outweigh the risks. So the overarching intention of these regulations is to demonstrate, I guess, the highest levels of efficacy and, you know, and also safety of the device. 
So that's on the regulatory side. Uh, so on the on the manufacturing side, then you need to, you know, it's easy to kind of design a device. Well, I won't say it's easy to design a device, but but once you have a device designed, there's a whole kind of second um, phase of design where you have to. It's called design for manufacture, and you have to. Uh, I guess design the product so that it can be mass produced. I heard an engineer from Apple uh, saying that they spend more time designing the jigs to to manufacture the iPhone than they do on the actual iPhone. So there are immense challenges in in transfer to manufacturing as well. And then I guess you have to once you've all that done, then you have to find the gauge train. And work with the you know the best clinical partners, um, and ensure that the, you know that your patients get the, the highest level of care, whether that be audiologists or ENTs, and and then of course uh, all of that changes from country to country. So it's def- different in Ireland than it would be in Germany, different in Germany than it would be in the US, and so on. So that's kind of a, a little bit of flavour of what you have to do to bring a. That's the short answer. Uh, Hazel. <laughs> right. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of bureaucracy, but um, also for for good uh, purpose, I would say. Uh, but do you actually have to like prove the efficacy of the device that it works, or is it more about the safety and the quality management side? So you have to do both. In Europe, uh, historically, um, safety was kind of prioritized above efficacy but more lately now as we transition from the medical device directive mdd to the medical device regulations mdr it's you there's a basically an obligation on you to to demonstrate the efficacy similarly with the fda uh, you have to demonstrate that the efficacy outweighs the, the safety risks all right let's talk a little bit about your sort of public communications have you been contacted by a lot of tinnitus patients and what has been your experience uh, communicating with them? Yeah, so we, we have been, uh, I, I think it's safe to say, overwhelmed by the number of emails and calls we, we've been getting on a, on a daily basis uh, from, from patients and with you know, a wide range of different queries and questions. And I think that demonstrates you know, it's, it's palpable evidence of, the, of, I guess, how badly served tinnitus patients are currently by the, the healthcare systems and how how big the the unmet clinical need is um, so we would love to be more responsive and answer you know every patient and all their queries uh, but we simply don't have the resources we're a small company um, and you know we're in the tens of people they're in the in the thousands if not tens of thousands so it's um, and we also need to concentrate so we need to be very disciplined and concentrate our resources on making the treatment available and bringing it uh, to the market and making it available to the patients as quickly as possible. Uh, so I think that's, that is the ultimate goal. So we, we, um, we need to really concentrate on that. Yeah, maybe that also explains why we've, we've uh, seen some people complain about their sort of per- perceived lack of uh, public updates from you guys. And people have felt there have been long periods of radio silence and that has uh, it has probably not escaped you that that has also led to a lot of speculation about what's going on. Is there something wrong? Are you guys hiding something, etc.? So um, th- this probably explains uh, a little bit from your side. Yeah, I think it's probably important to, to state that, you know, we're a small company. We have to focus our time, 
energy and resources on the strategic priorities, the stuff that moves us closer to making Lanier available to all the patients that want it. So as I talked about, you know, the expanding the number of clinics, the ramping up the manufacturing, securing, securing regulatory approval. Um, we fully understand that your members are enthusiastic and impatient to know more. Uh, but when providing updates, we definitely prefer to focus on completed milestones rather than future expectations. We want to be as open and as transparent as we can. But as I said, we're a small, small organization. You know, some of the bigger companies have whole teams who, who do this. We don't. Uh, so we basically, you know, announce whenever we've, we've completed large milestones that move us closer to delivering linear. Um, on the flip side, we also have uh, tinnitus talk members who uh, who are trying Lanier sort of express concern about the extent to which they're allowed, quote unquote, to talk about their uh, experiences uh, publicly. Is there any reason for such concern? Um, no. So, I mean, we in in the clinical trials, we asked patients to to sign up to confidentiality agreements and that was basically to protect the integrity um, of the clinical trials uh, so to to protect against unblinding and things like that we didn't want patients discussing uh, their their experiences you know because it, it ran the risk of of uh, compromising the integrity however you know when patients are um, undergoing treatments in the general medical sense then you know they they can express or, or discuss their their medical treatment freely. We as a company are bound by regulations, laws, including GDPR. So we have to treat all patient information strictly confidential. We can never discuss it. Uh, but in terms of patients sharing their own experiences, we we you know they're freely available to do that. Um, one thing that we would say, the only concern, I guess, that I would um, would express would be that, you know, um, that, I guess, information on forums is, you know, anecdotal and it's not it's not controlled information. It, not, it may not be, you know, kind of reflective of the wider experience. I know uh, personally um, we went through, uh, in my own family, we... Uh, we were struggling with a with a a decision um, medical decision and, and essentially we spent a lot of time on the the patient forums for that that chronic condition researching you know the patient experiences the you know hearing the the you know the good and bad stories about the about the about the treatments that we were considering uh, and and eventually we we made a decision to pro progress with the treatment and um and it, it worked out in our case but uh and i have to say we haven't it just occurred to me uh when when you know you asked me that question that i don't think we've ever been back to that forum since um you know which is i guess another another thing is that uh to consider is that you know some of the patients who who might be having you know experiencing benefits they may not be represented on the on the forum as they're you know like like us i guess get just kind of uh get on with the with the business everyday business of life yeah i th i totally recognize what you're saying uh, we as forum managers are very aware of that um that's also why we've tried to put a bit more, bit more structure around 
the way um, user experiences are uh, presented. So we've asked people to sign up to a user experience group and then in a more structured manner report both qualitatively on their experiences and fill in some qualitative data that we are um, collecting and will be presenting. Um, how do you guys feel about us doing that? Uh, yeah, well, again, um, the I guess we have conducted two of the largest clinical trials in certainly in the device space in, in tinnitus in the last four years. And, um, you know, we published the protocols in advance. We, we brought in all the leading experts, you know, um, and, and, you know, we've, we've brought in external independent people and organizations to independently verify, lock the trial database, you know, conclude the analysis of the trials. Um, and, you know, so it's, we've, we've invested a lot of time, effort, money, and, in in building out that clinical evidence and, and clinical trials are run in a very controlled way um so that the you know that the the uh, insights and outcomes are are rigorous and and uh and have been conducted uh, you know according to all that the 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 international guidelines um so so i guess the only concern i would have is that you know a small sample um of of patients again is is that it would be represented uh, appropriately um in kind of like in the in the same way that that uh you know surgeons would present anecdotal case series or or whatever um and and I guess uh, openly acknowledge the the limitations of the of the data and the insights. Yeah, and we will absolutely do that. And and to be clear, we're not trying to replicate a clinical trial setting. We obviously don't have the resources for that. So we want to be very clear and upfront about that. But what we are trying to do is put a bit more structure around the way user experiences are presented rather than just this complete free flow of uh, information that you get in a in a thread on a forum. Yeah, and I do totally agree with that. Um, I I would read Tennis's talk um, whenever I have have a spare moment, but uh, it is I you can definitely see that you guys are uh, because there is an awful lot of information there. So extrapolating out the pertinent and consolidating it in 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 one area is uh, I think is very important. Again, having traveled that kind of journey personally. Uh, if that's not there, you have to commit tens, if not hundreds of hours, you know, reading through uh, a lot of information that's not pertinent. So being able to get straight to the information that you want uh, is very, very useful. And I think you guys are doing a great job there. Thank you. Um, just a few more questions on business aspects before we move on. Uh, can you tell us anything about third parties that you guys are collaborating with, whether it be governments, universities, patient organizations, etc. Yeah, so we've we have both formal and informal collaborations um in terms of the the patient side, I guess we we would be corporate sponsors of the American and British uh, tinnitus associations and of the the uh, German tinnitus association. Um in terms of of government agencies, we uh, we are supported by Enterprise Ireland, which is an Irish government um funding agency who 
who funded our research right through from the university out into um, into the company. Uh, we also work with a number of universities on the scientific side. Our science advisory board are all university-based. Uh, so Berthold Langguth, who is the chair of our science advisory board and was PI on the Tente one study, is based in the University of Regensburg in Germany. So we have very strong links with that organization and get on very well with everyone over there. Uh, similarly, Sven Vanest um, has recently actually moved to Trinity College Dublin from the University of Texas. Um, so now that he's in our neighborhood, we're increasingly collaborating with him and with Trinity College, particularly around um, big data analytics and, and using artificial intelligence, uh, intelligence to, to go through the, the huge database of 10 one and 10 two data that we have to to gather more and more insights to you know move us closer to our, our mission of delivering more personalized and targeted treatments. Um, and then we have other uh, science advisory board members, uh, Professor Deb Hall, who's based at the University of Nottingham, and then Professor Rich Tyler, who's based at the University of Iowa in the US. Um, and then historically, we have a strong relationship with uh, my own alma mater, uh, which is Maynooth University, which is just outside of Dublin, which the original technology was, was conceived and spun out from. Some people have also asked specifically about the role of Dr. Hubert Lim at Neuromod, considering that he's also, I think, in some way linked to the University of Minnesota, which is also working on a bimodal stimulation device. Um, what can you tell us about his role? Yeah, so Hubert is our um, is Neuromod's chief scientific officer. As you say, he's also a professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, he took a, a sabbatical to come work with us full-time for the past two years, and then more recently now has, has started to, to divide his time between the two roles and locations. Uh, his work um, at the University of Minnesota has been extremely um, complementary and and synergistic with our own. Um, he published a paper in 2015 in Nature Scientific Reports showing that the tongue uh, was the optimal site for bimodal neuromodulation in terms of driving big, the biggest neuroplastic effects, uh, which was fantastic for us which because it independently um, validated our our approach and this was before we had uh, developed a relationship with him so a while after that uh, i approached hubert and you know talked to him about about joining neuromod um given that the work was so complementary uh with the view that if we work together um you know we'd we'd essentially get treatments to patients quicker um, so, which is what we both both want. Um, so, we're developing a collaboration uh, with the University of Minnesota, and hope that that will, you know, kind of play that they will play an important role as a partner as we look to the U.S. market with our technology. All right, let's talk a bit more about the treatment itself, uh, how it works, how well it works, for whom it works. Um, can you maybe first briefly summarize the basic principles of the treatment? Yeah, sure. Um, so the our approach, I guess the the best way to um, before explaining our, our the the kind of our approach to the treatment is to explain how we view tinnitus. So um, we came at tinnitus from the viewpoint that it was a stimulation problem. So while there is a causal link yet to be proven, um, the 
you know, very high uh, coincidence of hearing loss and tinnitus would suggest that there is causal link between the two. So our view was that uh, hearing loss prob- probably does cause tinnitus. And I guess the simplest way to describe it would be to, to talk about an electric water pump that um, if you took the, the, the hose supplying the water pump and you kind of pinched it, starving supply to the water pump, it would oscillate in a desperate attempt to suck in more water. And, and so we believe the same thing is happening in the brain. So when, when a patient uh, suffers hearing loss, essentially the brain tries to fill the, the sensory gap with noise. It tries to compensate uh, for the, the sensory loss and fills the gap with noise. That noise then gets propagated through, from the auditory brain stem uh, through the thalamus to the, the auditory cortex where it's actually perceived as, as real sound. Thereafter, then the, the condition is kind of habituated because patients pay more attention to it. Um, and I guess uh, it become emotionally engaged, right? So when if we hear something that, that uh, shouldn't be there, um, it's, we are going to pay attention to it and it is going to, you know, um, cause a little bit of fear. And unfortunately, those three combination are... Uh, the combination of those three things are, are very powerful in terms of driving what we call maladaptive uh, neuroplasticity. Um, so that's that's our view of tinnitus. So we we looked at at the problem and we said, okay, you know, patients can go get hearing aids, sound therapies. These these things have been have been on the market for for decades for tinnitus, and yet. Every time we advertise for a clinical trial, we literally have thousands of patients turn up at our door. So that tells us that these technologies are, are basically not doing the job. So if it is a stimulation problem, then and the, the hearing loss is causing a fundamental kind of limit to how much stimulation you can get through the ear, then we started looking for, you know, kind of side channels through which we could get more stimulation. So it turns out that the somatosensory uh, system, uh, in particular, the uh, trigeminal nerve innervates the, the auditory, multiple parts of the auditory brain. So we started using that as a target uh, by which to drive more stimulation into the brain. So the idea was that we would pair sound with trigeminal nerve stimulation. So we'd, we'd specifically target the hearing loss bands. So the bands where, where there had been sensory loss, where we believed the, the you know, this compensation was happening. So to, to drive stimulation through them and to pair that with trigeminal nerve stimulation again and again and again uh, with the view of, of you know, driving positive neuroplastic changes that would counteract the, the maladaptive neuroplastic changes that I described earlier that we believe give rise, rise to tinnitus. So that, that was our basic approach um, to, the, to the, the system or to the, to the problem. So uh, is the sound input specifically stimulating the lost hearing frequencies? Yes, yeah, so we, we essentially, that's, that's what we try to do um, when you know, when patients are, are come to the clinic, uh, they undergo a pure tone audiometry test, which tells us uh, which uh, hearing bands are damaged and, and to what level. So then we compensate uh, for that uh, to ensure that they get, you know, um, 
equal auditory stimulation across all frequency bands. And then we pair we paired that stimulation then with trigeminal nerve uh, stimulation to try drive long-term effects. Mm-hmm. So specifically, which parts of the brain is the treatment targeting? That might be a difficult question because I know the brain is a network and all of that, but can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, so that, that is, I mean, I know everybody really wants, uh, you know, to say that it's one structure, but the, the brain is the most incredibly complex you know, we probably know more about the Milky Way and about space than we do about the brain. It's it's just, it's so incredibly complex. It's a huge network of neurons, um, and and you know, no one thing happens uh, in independence. So the idea that how we approach this problem was that, okay, this maladaptive neuroplasticity, as I said, it starts in the kind of you know when auditory nerve activity you know falls below a certain level. Then we see increased activity in you know places like the dorsal cochlear nucleus, inferior colliculus that ripples through the, the thalamus up to the auditory cortex, and then you know we see networks form between the limbic and and kind of attentional centers. So really, what we're trying to do is disrupt that. Um, so in I guess the same kind of bottom up way that that uh, that tinnitus you know f- formed from hearing loss we're trying to disrupt it in a similarly bottom-up uh, fashion and you know but ultimately we're trying to disturb that network that maladaptive network and then how that may manifest for the patient um can vary because the as i always say the pain of tinnitus it manifests in different aspects of the patient's life uh, for some people it's it's the loudness you know really drives them crazy for some people it interferes with their concentration. Some people, you know, they have, uh, you know, heightened anxiety. Some people can't sleep, um, and and so because the condition manifests in different parts of, of people's lives, so too does the the, the benefit the benefit of the of the tre- treatment. Um, so I know that people really want to lock down on one part of the brain, and one kind of you know outcome, but unfortunately. The, the nature of tinnitus is not that simple and the nature of the treatment is not going to be either. So do you see Lanier as a treatment that reduces the tinnitus signal itself or a, one that allows the brain to habituate to or cope with the sound? Yeah, so we're, we are trying to disrupt that you know, maladaptive um, activity in the brain. So I guess they're, in some ways they are two sides of the same coin um you know if you disrupt the signal then if patients will will it will begin to adapt because if you look at it the other way that's how the condition formed it was first of all the 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 patients essentially maladapted to this this illusory sound so they hear the sound they you know maybe become anxious about it keep paying attention to it that enhances the sound because as we know if we pay attention and are emotionally driven or emotionally directed towards any percept um, then it is more powerful in the brain so it's then the same is is true with the reverse you know if you disrupt those signals then you know you'll be less likely to pay attention to it you will be less emotionally disturbed by it which then will drive further, you know, I guess, enhanced gains. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a snowball effect either way, both in the maladaptive and the positively adapted sense. 
Right. So it's actually a bit of both. Uh, and it's both the reducing the signal and enhancing the coping and the two kind of reinforce each other. Exactly. It's, it's, you can't separate out one from the other, really. Mm-hmm. So how is the Lanier treatment similar to or different from other bimodal stimulation treatments? Because I know there are other teams out there working on bimodal stimulation treatments, such as uh, Susan Shore in Michigan. Yep. And there's also a group in the University of Texas as well. Um, so I guess some of the, the treatments would target different nerves. Um, so the... Um, like some groups concentrate on the on the vagus nerve, so they pair uh, auditory stimulation with vagal nerve stimulation because um, there were a number of papers that showed that um, that essentially the vagus nerve can activate nucleus basalis, which is a kind of an attentional key attentional center. And as I said before, driving attention kind of hardwires effects into the brain faster. Um, so they took that approach. Um, Unfortunately, the only way to access the vagus nerve is through surgery. So uh, it's a highly invasive procedure. Um, and then other devices um, also uh, target, let's say, the trigeminal nerve non-invasively, but they may do it, you know, by stimulating the face or the or the neck. Um, now, for us, we chose the tongue because. Um, Essentially, it, it was it's the most innervated uh, part of the body outside of the the fingertip. Um, so, in terms of you know kind of bang for your buck, if you're going to stimulate any nerve, that's that's the place to do it. Also, it doesn't the tongue doesn't have the epidermal layer, which means that you can stimulate at much much lower uh, levels of electricity, which is much safer and um, and also then the tongue has has a has a naturally replenishing and highly conductive electrolyte uh, in saliva uh, so the tongue made made sense uh, from our perspective on multiple levels and then in 2015 as i said uh, hubert lim published a paper in nature scientific reports that showed that it was um, it was probably the best target in terms of driving the biggest neuroplastic effects so essentially, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to drive long-term effects. Uh, and that's what we, in Tente 1 and Tente 2, uh, we, you know, we treated for 12 weeks and then we followed up for 12 months after to, to try observe those, those long-term effects. Yeah, well, well let's uh, expand on that a little bit more because I know you guys have done several clinical trials. Can you sort of summarize for us um, the effectiveness or efficacy of the treatment, what you know about it now, like how many people does it work for, how well does it work for them? So we've conducted, as I said, two large-scale clinical trials, 10-day-1 and 10-day-2, which in total uh, included over 500 patients. The trial involved 12 weeks of treatment um, and then followed up by 12 months of follow-up to to look at the sustainability of the clinical effects. Uh, so what we saw was the, the majority of patients um, experienced a clinically meaningful benefit in the first six weeks of treatment. Uh, in 10 day one, we saw that patients got marginal improvement in the second six weeks of treatment. And then when we followed up, we saw that they, they, uh, they retained those clinical effects for 12 months post-treatment. 
In 10 day two, um, we wanted to see, could we break through the, the plateau that we saw in, in the second six weeks of treatment? We believe that this was um, happening due to a, a neural phenomenon known as habituation or adaptation. So we, we decided that we would switch stimulation at the six-week point to try overcome that. Um, and what we saw was in 10 day two that we did break through that. Uh, that treatment plateau. So we saw even bigger effects in the second six weeks in 10 day two. And then again, we followed up for 12 months in 10 day two also. And so we replicated those kind of long-term effects as well. So um, so that's that's essentially, and in terms of then percentage of responders in, in 10 day one, we saw that two thirds of patients had a clinically meaningful effect and about, about one third of patients didn't respond. In 10 day two, it was higher. It was, you know, in around 80% of patients responded. So it may be that, that switching stimulation may drive up the responder rates. Um, but as, you know, this is this kind of like the first step in a kind of a, a lifelong journey for us. We're breaking brand new ground here. There's, there's never been a bimodal neuromodulation treatment for tinnitus. Uh, it's a brand new field. So we are literally, you know, working along with patients doctors, scientists, we all are going to have to play a part, I guess, in, in the development of this technology and, and, and travel this journey together. Uh, what do you mean when you say switching stimulation? So you change the sound input or the electrical input or both? Uh, yeah, so um, we in, in Tente 2, we did both. Uh, so in, in some arms, we, we just switched the electrical stimulation um, so we kept the auditory the same and we switched the, the, the electrical stimulation. We introduced, you know, kind of imperceptible delays that they wouldn't be consciously perceptible, but they, the, the, I guess the nervous system would, would register them. And, uh, we were hoping that they would overcome this problem of habituation and it did. And then, uh, in some of the other arms, then we, we, we also switched the auditory stimulation at the six-week point. So we just literally just published the protocol for that paper. Um, so if, you're, if your members want to check out our Twitter feed um, or uh, we are in the process of posting uh, the link uh, to, to the, the publisher's website on our, on our own website um, and they can get access to the protocol paper there. All right. So you said, uh, was it 60 something percent in the first trial and a higher percentage in the second trial got um, clinically significant improvement? Do you define clinically significant? Yeah, so we, um, we went with what is, you know, the, um, the published minimal clinically important difference. Um, so it's it's not us that defines it. We've taken you know the community's definition of what what it defines as as clinically meaningful or clinically significant. Um, so our primary outcome measures were the THI and TFI. So these are patient reported uh, psychometric outcomes that measure. Um, I guess, assess the impact of tinnitus across the various pain areas that I described, you know, so they, they include, you know, questions about loudness, about sleep, about emotional disturbance, about attentional disturbance, about um, just all the, the areas where, where tinnitus impacts uh, your life. Um, and these, these questionnaires are validated. They're the most common, commonly used metrics in clinical trials, and they just, they just capture every aspect of the condition. 
Uh, so for TFI, the published minimal clinically important difference is 13 points, uh, and for THI, it's seven points. So if patients got above, you know, kind of seven points in, in THI, then that would be considered clinically significant in THI. Um, if they got above 13 points in TFI, then that's considered clinically significant for that measure. Um, one thing I'd say is that THI and TFI tend to track each other very, very closely. Uh, so they correlate to a very, very, very high degree. Um, so there is a certain level of redundancy in, in tracking both of them. But uh, at least, you know, you know, it's a, an extra confidence measure if you do track both of them. Um, we also measured MML, which is a, a kind of a, an audiometric uh, measure of, of assessing tinnitus loudness. Previously, we had used uh, a, a kind of a, a similar approach called tinnitus matching. And it, if we found it very challenging clinically in that we had to, the, the patient has to match their, their tinnitus frequency and then assess the loudness from there. Um, we found that a very significant number of patients couldn't match their frequency. They had maybe atonal tinnitus, they had multiple types of tinnitus. So we decided then that we would move, we'd actually abandon uh, tinnitus matching and move to MML uh, because it was more broadband, uh, broadband masking. We, but I have to say we, we found that not as challenging, but uh, there were definite challenges with using, using that as an outcome measure. Um, Again, uh, the problems with patients have multiple forms of tinnitus, one tonal, one atonal, one more that caused them more trouble than the other. And, you know, so we've kind of gone more towards the patient reported outcomes now, THI and TFI, uh, because they, they just capture every aspect, including loudness. And as I said, you know, tinnitus is a multifactorial um, problem. So we, we want to capture the, the various um aspects of of the of the condition right so mml i think is minimum masking level so that's an attempt to um somewhat objectively or try to objectively measure the tinnitus loudness and see then whether it actually reduces but you're saying it's technically basically too challenging to actually measure that it's it's one of a it it, it is one tool that the the audiologist needs to use in a suite of tools really and not all patients will will their their tinnitus will be maskable it's um so it's it's you know it's one tool as i say in a toolbox but um i mean ultimately we all want the objective you know kind of outcome measure from tinnitus we've tried it with eeg we've tried it with mris it's that's the holy grail you know um and then uh, and and the community is working towards that, uh, but no one outcome measure is perfect, which is why you have to kind of use a a suite of outcome measures to assess the the impact of the condition and also then the benefit of an intervention. So to come back to the uh, clinically significant improvement and and how you measure that, so if thirteen points on the TFI, the tinnitus functional index, is considered clinically significant. Um, one could also argue that those 13 points improvement could have come from just people naturally improving over time, as tends to happen, or that there's a placebo effect at play where because 
people believe something beneficial is happening to them, they actually improve. So how did you account for that in your uh, trials? Yeah, so the, the 13 points, I guess, is uh, the community has decided on that because it's kind of beyond the scope of, of observed placebo effects. So it's kind of like um, you set a threshold at which it, it is above and beyond placebo effects. So that's why, you know, a lot of these minimal um, clinically important differences exist because they're beyond the, the size of the, of the placebo effects that we see in trials. Um, again, you mentioned that the kind of... Um, you know, patients just naturally uh, improving over time. We had a, uh, in 10 day one and 10 day two, we had a run-in uh, period. So patients were, you know, screened and told they were getting into the trial. Then we waited um, for, you know, for a fairly significant amount of time to let that kind of take its course. Um, and then we, we, you know, we, we brought them in and rolled them in the study and, and fitted them with the device. So, a certain a level of that kind of um, that natural improvement would have been accounted for in the run-in period. Um, equally, then you know the placebo effects are fairly well characterized by a lot of the a lot of the clinical trials, you know, um, and they it, the placebo effect follows certain patterns. So we we looked at you know how quickly patients improved, the levels of improvement. The sustainability of the improvement is a really critical one because placebo effects wear off. Um, so the fact that we're seeing patients, you know, maintain the benefit up to 12 months afterwards, uh, all of these things were, were how we kind of, um, I guess, you know, accounted for the placebo effect in the trials. Um, now, one of the, the, the kind of constant uh, things that people bring up with us is why don't we just have a placebo group in one of our trials? Right. That was going to be what my next yeah. question. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, about the millionth time we've heard it, you know, and, and uh, it's essentially uh, neuromodulation. So placebo, the, the kind of traditional tr uh, placebo uh, trial design was designed for drugs. So it's very easy to give someone a sugar pill and, you know, so... Uh, with other technologies, um, it's proving more and more difficult. Um, I think that model, the the placebo trial, has has served well for regulators up to now. But as as we develop new technologies like like neuromodulation, it's it's we're going to have to, I guess, look at at other ways of of proving the efficacy. Our challenge is that uh, the nature of the linear treatment is that, um, you know. Patients hear sounds through the ears and feel stimulation on the tongue. If we if we turn off either of those uh, to make it a placebo treatment, the patient will notice, you know. And what happens then is you get unblinding, and the patients who don't have the treatment know they're not getting the treatment, and you know will not prove. And and then the integrity of the of that kind of placebo control trial is is compromised. So what you do then is you you look at other ways to do it. Um, you know you can you. Our approach has been to to look at the varying uh, types of, of stimulation parameters and showing that there are differences between those. Um, so what we saw in Tente 1, that those differences between um, high-frequency synchronized stimulation and low-frequency asynchronous stimulation over the long run, so over 12 months, we saw that the the two groups diverged. Um, so we're seeing differential effects uh, from different, different parameters. Um, but, you know, all in all, the, the body of evidence that we have um, 
where we've accounted for the placebo in the various, you know, aspects that I mentioned, run-in periods, you know, um, comparing to historical placebo controls, then long-term effects, and then also then differential uh, effects between stimulation parameters. Um, we believe that we have it well characterized and that the, you know, that we have a very compelling uh, argument in terms of, of the, the benefit uh, of, of linear over and above uh, any placebo or other effects. Um, I guess ultimately, you know, the patients will decide. Uh, so that's, you know, you do clinical trials to demonstrate the efficacy, to, to demonstrate the safety to get the product to the patients. Um, and, you know, and what we're trying to do is, I guess, to to serve the needs of this huge population that have, have just been almost ignored up to now, you know. And uh, so we're trying to lead the way in terms of, you know, making significant investments into the research in this space, um, working with the patient groups, working with the top scientists, the top doctors, uh, to really, you know, to address this, to really address this unmatched clinical needs in a in a very uh, serious manner. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more on that. Obviously, as a tinnitus patient, that uh, tinnitus has been vastly underfunded and under-researched. So from our perspective, the more companies that get into this space, the better. So I know this, you've answered this question before as well, but because it comes up again and again and again, I'm going to ask it anyway. Does it matter what uh, people's tinnitus sounds like? So whether they hear crickets or clicking or ringing and uh, how high or low those sounds are, does that matter at all in terms of uh, the efficacy of the treatment? No, it doesn't. Um, so the tinnitus pitch tone, frequency, they do not matter. Um, as I said, our approach is that it's the hearing loss. Uh, we, we, you know, we uh, conduct a pure tone audiometry test to assess which bands are, have damage to ensure that we get you know, equal stimulation uh, in all frequency bands. But the actual tinnitus pitch, tone, frequency, you know, or qualitative kind of um, aspects of the condition don't matter. It's more to do with the hearing loss and uh, and that's that's how we approach it. Right. So um, what I found perhaps the most fascinating outcome of your clinical trials is that it seemed that people with hyperacusis seem to be super responders, if you will, respond uh, very well to the treatment compared to others, uh, and I should specify that we're talking about improvements in their tinnitus, not their hyperacusis, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but uh, do you know why this is? We don't yet. We have a, as I said, you know, Tente 1 and Tente 2 were some of the largest clinical trials ever conducted in this space, um, not only in terms of patient numbers, but also in terms of the the amount of data that we captured. So the patients, I think, in total probably came to the hospital eight times, seven or eight times. And at every visit, we took a really large kind of suite or, or battery of, of assessments and tests. So now, as I said, we're working with, you know, people like Sven Van Est and Trinity College in really using artificial intelligence and, and big data analytic techniques to, to go through that data to try find out uh, the characteristics of patients who respond and the characteristics of patients who don't respond. 
um, hyperacusis emerged as a, a leading marker of, of responsiveness in tent A1. Um, why that is, we, we don't know. Um, we're going to continue to look at it in more detail. Um, yes, it is important, as you say, to, to point out that uh, what we saw were these patients, their tinnitus improved, their hyperacusis did not change. Um, so, you know, we're going to continue to look at that group um, and and other groups as well. There are other groups uh, that are, are emerging. Um, it's early days. Uh, we have a lot of data. We need to go through that. And But ultimately, our mission, as I said, is to move towards more targeted and more personalized treatments. Um, so to, to improve on what, what we have, uh, which is a, an extremely promising start, I think. Um, so just, and as I said, it's the first steps in this journey of, of bimodal neuromodulation. Uh, and we're hoping that our success in this space, you know, or we'll have some success in this space and that, you know, that will encourage, uh, because as you said, you know, tinnitus for, for such a, an enormous unmet clinical needs has just not attracted uh, the kind of investment that it should, either from the, the public side or the or the the private side. Uh, but I think that people are, that, that mindset is starting to change. Um, you know, and I think particularly on the private side, I think that uh, that investors are looking at it and looking at, you know, almost 2 million veterans in the US in receipt of, of disability benefits. It's costing the USVA over $3 billion a year. Um, I think people are starting to wake up really to what, what a big, big problem it is. So what we need now is, I guess, you know, a number of small companies like us to come in and start getting some uh, success in the area, start, I guess, taking what has been a fragmented treatment space and you know working with all the top scientists and clinicians to to make it more orderly to define treatment pathways to to you know just to make it uh more formalized um and then once that happens i am convinced that it will attract uh, more and more investment from both the public and private side uh, and that will be to the huge benefit of tinnitus patients Absolutely. I surely hope you're right uh, on that. You talked a little bit about the need to sort of categorize patients into different groups and because they might respond differently to the treatment. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you're aware this is kind of the buzzword at the moment in tinnitus research is subtyping. So, um, you know, uh, distinguishing between tinnitus that was noise-induced versus tinnitus that came from other causes, distinguishing between somatic tinnitus and non-somatic tinnitus, all of these things. So are you planning to dig more into your data and um, and try to do some subtyping? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, they are the the subtypes that you mentioned are the, the subtypes that I guess the working group in the tinnitus research initiative, um, you know, kind of had defined and and their work was was excellent in in you know starting to kind of bring that kind of thinking to to uh, the tinnitus space, um, and we believe that it will be there'll actually be um, even further 
uh, tinnitus subtypes and probably you know even more kind of refined um, tinnitus subtypes uh, because in a lot of those categories you know many patients will be in multiple categories they might be somatic and you know something else hearing loss or um, so I think it's again as I said I think it's this is the start of the journey uh, and I do believe the subtyping is going to be critical in 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 the 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 management uh, of tinnitus within the healthcare systems, because I think that's what it, what it's one of the problems with it up to now. In that, the clinical community just don't know how to handle it. There's just so many etiologies, uh, so many different factors in it, um, and I think how they handle it right now is probably quite crude, and and it just needs to be refined. And it's going to be the community, and by the community, I mean the the scientists. Um, you know, patients, clinicians, industry, uh, academia, it's going to be all of us um, that have to drive that that kind of agenda forward. Um, but I think that is where definitely where the, the field, certainly in the clinical care sense, needs to go. Yeah, well, as a patient, I can attest to that. And of course, I hear so many stories from other patients. Um, my GP, for instance, refused to believe I could have chronic tinnitus because I was too young. So one of the many misconceptions that healthcare professionals might have. Yeah, that's that's a huge part, I think, is the education piece. Um, I think that's another, another big, big part will be uh, challenging these long held assertions of the medical community particularly uh, general practitioners you know um yeah yeah have you seen any effect in terms of treatment response with regard to how long someone has had tinnitus does it matter if they've had it 20 years or uh, six months we have not seen anything yet that that suggests that duration is important in tente one we looked at you know up to five years in tente two we extended that so it hasn't emerged as something, duration hasn't emerged as, as important. Um, but we will continue to use all of the post-market uh, clinical follow-up data that we're obliged to collect from a re regulatory perspective to see if duration and, and other variables are important. So as I said, this is kind of like, like we studied 500 patients in the, 500 plus patients in the, in the clinical trial, but you know, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to study thousands, if not tens of thousands of patients in, in the post-market uh, clinical uh, phase. So, and, and that process, we'll probably actually learn more, the, uh, you know, in the post-market phase than we will in the clinical trial phase. Uh, but as I said, it's, it's going to be, you know, it's the first step in a, in a journey of, of continuous improvement towards more targeted and personalized treatments. Mm-hmm. Do you know why a certain group, I think in your trials, it's maybe 20 or 30 percent, doesn't respond to the treatment at all? Again, we're, we don't, but we're, we're, we're looking into it. Um, I mean, there are obvious patients like pulsatile tinnitus, um, you know, kind of things like that, that, you know, maybe more indicative of, of you know, vascular uh, causes or etiologies. Um, they're obvious ones that, and we, but we didn't include those guys in the clinical trial. Um, but yeah, there's there some patients respond, some patients don't. We're trying now, using this huge database that we have to characterize both responders and non-responders. And I suspect it will be a continuum that you know, just like uh, you have in in the THI, you have maybe five categories that 
that you know range from slight, mild, moderate, severe, catastrophic. Um, I think that we will see a similar kind of thing on the on the response side that there will be non-responders through to you know kind of mild responders, moderate responders, strong responders, and super responders. If you know just throwing out you know random kind of categories, but um, but I suspect that's that's what we'll see. But what we're we would like to do is to be able to characterize those guys a priori so that we can we can you know almost tell them what what their chances are up front, you know. Mm-hmm. This is a, maybe a bit of a niche question, but important to uh, uh, a minority of tinnitus patients that suffer from what are thought to be related conditions like um, floaters or visual snow. Um, there are conditions like that that we know statistically um, occur more frequently with tinnitus patients and vice versa. Uh, have you at all looked into any effects on those sort of related conditions? No, it's um, this uh, visual snow is not something we've looked into. Um, we are looking into relationships with other audiological conditions such as hyperacusis, as I said, but we're not looking at um, non-audiological or visual uh, conditions, related conditions at this time. We should also, at this point, I guess, broach the topic of potential risks or side effects of the treatment. I think when we did our video Q&A, you said you hadn't, there were no patients who had suffered long-term adverse effects from the trials. Now, of course, the treatment is on the market, so more people are trying it. Uh, We have seen one or two people on our forum who are trying the, the treatment saying that they did get worse, but I really don't want to blow this out of proportion because I think anytime you have a large group of people trying any kind of treatment, there's going to be a small minority that experiences something negative and you can't even be sure whether it comes from the treatment, maybe something else happened in their lives, etc. So, you know, I really don't want to make a big deal out of it. But nevertheless, it's something important, I guess, for you guys to keep an eye on. And do you have any sort of new information about this since the treatment was uh, launched? Yeah, so I'd say that, um, yeah, it is very important that we track all this kind of stuff. We have actually have a legal obligation from the regulatory perspective to track, uh, you know, all this kind of adverse events and and patient safety concerns. So uh, we do track all of that. We do, uh, from the clinical trials, we know that many patients report a fluctuation in their tinnitus loudness, uh, particularly at the start of treatment. Um, but the the trial data, as I said in the Q and A video, um, you know, tells us that you know tinnitus loudness and stuff like that, on average, reduces over the twelve weeks of treatment. We didn't find any evidence in the in the two clinical trials that you know tinnitus loudness uh, increased or stayed increased, or even that these fluctuations continued in the longer term. Um, but yeah, it is it is something that patients report. Um, quite commonly. I think that is probably to be expected to, in, to some degree. Um, I know that many patients, when they develop tinnitus first, it's it's kind of, it's very severe, and then it kind of settles down to a more stable level. Um, and if that's happening, while well, the kind of those maladaptive forces are, are, you know, habituating the condition, as I spoke about earlier, I guess the same could be expected in the reverse. 
that if you're if you're disrupting those those maladaptive networks that you're going to experience the the fluctuations before it settles down so it is definitely um it's in our instructions for use and our labeling that you know patients have reported that and may experience that um we also had a very small percentage of patients i think it was around two percent or that uh, reporting that you know that they experienced some headaches during the trial um, some complain about the kind of you know but having to wear the headphones and things like that but as you say headaches are quite a, a, a common occurrence anyway in the everyday life and uh, so may it may or may not be have been related to the treatment but yes we we definitely track all of those safety outcomes uh, and all patient reported safety concerns are are you know kind of recorded reported and go into our our um our vigilance processes that we have to maintain under our iso 13485 um obligations and, and other regulatory obligations anyway let's talk a little bit more about the clinical trial data because i know not all the data has been published yet when will the complete data set from all your clinical trials be published yeah, so as I said, the complete data set from all the clinical trials is absolutely enormous. Um, we were hugely ambitious in the, the, the design of, of the two clinical trials. We measured primary, secondary, and a very wide range of exploratory endpoints at screening, enrollment, uh, six-week treatment point, 12-week treatment point, and then six weeks, six months, and... 12 months uh, after treatment. So uh, we have, as I said, um, we've actually hired some data analysts ourselves. We're also collaborating collaborating with Professor Sven Van Est to analyze this database for further insights that will help us uh, improve linear and, and deliver more effective and personalized treatments, as I said. So publishing the complete data set, I guess, is neither feasible, uh, feasible nor planned. Uh, due to the large size and also the, the proprietary information contained within it. And I guess to some degree then, as you said, the data is unpublished as of yet. So we're, that is one of the reasons why um, is that it has taken us longer than we hoped to go through database lock, uh, which is a necessary step before um, regulatory filings and publication. So database lock involves verifying every data point has been accurately entered, stored, downloaded, um, we've taken the additional step of engaging a widely respected and internationally recognized independent organization called NAMSA um, to complete that task, essentially to, to you know, verify all the data, lock the data, analyze the data. So this is uh, best practice, I guess, and, uh, and, you know, kind of, I hope, underscores our intention to ensure the validity and robustness of the data. Uh, that process is nearly complete, very nearly complete, and uh, once it is, then the final mans manuscript will be sent to our Science Advisory Board for final approval and a submission uh, for the peer review process. So as I said, we're very close to that at the moment. Um, we'll let uh, patients know once the paper has been published, the peer review process can be, well, it's kind of indeterminate in terms of the, the length of time the journal that we're we're targeting is has um as journals go one the faster turnarounds 
So, um, but once it is published, it will be completely open access as are all our publications. It will be freely available through our own website and also through the, the website of the publishers. Uh, we'll have a copy on our website. We'll post it on our, on our Twitter feed and, you know, we'll have links both then to the, to the publisher's website where it will be openly available as well. Uh, why did you actually uh, decide to launch the device before uh, the trial results were published? Okay, so in 2015, we completed what, what was called the TAVS study. So this was a 60-patient clinical trial that we used to get our CE mark, uh, which allowed us to market the product in Europe. So the, the results of that study were published and are, again, openly available through our own and the publisher's websites. Um, but in 2015, we secured a large venture capital investment to conduct large-scale clinical trials and to further our understanding of, of the clinical effects of, of the various stimulation parameters in bimodal neuromodulation and also then to look at the differential responsiveness of, of various tinnitus patient subtypes. So this was very much in line with the kind of the, the emerging thinking among the Tinnitus Research Initiative, which is reflected by, you know, kind of three of the most prominent scientists in that organization being on our science advisory board. But also we recognize that Tinnitus has suffered from a credibility challenge, you know, uh, and so we wanted to invest significantly in a very large-scale clinical research program to build out uh, large amounts of clinical data, uh, if really enhance our understanding of both the condition and of, of the, the technology, and to be able to come to the market from a, a position of strength in terms of credibility. So the two studies that we conducted were the Tente-1 and Tente-2 studies. They're they are um, certainly the largest and longest followed up studies uh, within the medical device space. There may have been some drug studies that were, you know, equal in terms of patient number sizes. But in terms of, of you know, the follow up, I think that our, our studies are probably the longest followed up. Um, we had over 500 patients between the two studies. The motivation for them, as I said, was to gain regulatory approval in the US and other countries. Uh, we already had approval in Europe. Um, and then also then to to basically to come to the market from a position of of, uh, of of credibility. But at the same time, we were under increasing and very significant pressure from patients, uh, both who'd been on our clinical trial and patients who'd become aware of the top line results that we were presenting at many of the conferences uh, to make the treatment available to them. As I said, we have literally been overwhelmed by the number of emails, phone calls, uh, queries that we get and to be honest most of those lately have been about the availability of the of the treatment um, so we decided that we would start making it available to patients here in Europe um, and to many of the patients who had participated in clinical trials who, who really wanted to, to access the treatment so we had European approval we, we opened Neuromod Medical which is a our Center of Excellence for Tinnitus Assessment and Care in Dublin. Um, very soon we will open a second center in Hanover in Germany. Uh, from there, we are in talks with a number of other uh, kind of leading centers. So as I said, we, we decided, um, you know, back in 15 that we would work with all the top people, both in terms of the, the scientists the, and also on the clinical front as well. So we're going to um, we're going to make Lanier available through a kind of key centers of excellence throughout Europe, 
um, uh, the first of which will be Hanover, which will be open um, in the, the coming months. Great. Yeah, I do want to get back to that point of the plans for the future rollout of the device. But uh, it sounds like what you're saying is there's this trade-off between, you know, you could wait for years until you have all the possible information and analyzed all the data and refined uh, the device and whatnot, but then patients are waiting for years and years. Or, you know, you can launch once you feel confident enough uh, and then patients don't have to to wait for years. So I guess there's always that trade-off there. Exactly. So peer review is, there are multiple levels of peer review. You can go to the big conferences where all the most prominent scientists and clinicians will be in attendance. You can present the results to them there. They will, you know, robustly challenge you uh, on those results and in those, in those forum, right, and in an open forum in front of the entire community. Um, so that's in some ways is, is probably more rigorous uh, a peer review process than the actual journal process where it will be literally two or three reviewers will, will come back with comments. Whereas um, if you were at you know, the big conferences, AAO or, or any of these big head and neck conferences or ENT conferences or audiology conferences, there will literally be hundreds of people, hundreds of experts in the audience and they in the Q and A sessions, they will, you know, they will put the 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 trial, the data, everything through a very rigorous uh, peer review process, and so that gives you great confidence. Once you've been through that process, um, and we, uh, Professor Hubert Lim, had extensively uh, presented our top line results at, at all the big meetings last year, um, and as had Professor Bertolang Guth, uh, Professor Sven Benest had presented some results as well. So we felt very confident that we'd gone through, let's say, the first level of peer review and with, with you know, the community uh, face-to-face. Um, and now we're in the process of locking out the database and we'll, we'll put it through that, that publication process, which uh, to some degree, as I said, is a more limited peer review process. Um, but, you know, it's very, very important that um, because not all patients can attend all of these conferences. So it's very important to us that patients get uh, get access to the data. And uh, so that will happen now. But it did the the I guess presenting the top line processes or uh, results and going through that um, that process in in the the big conferences gave us confidence to, to start making the, the treatment available. That and also the fact that many of our of our patients were saying, "Okay, I had a fabulous response on the on the clinical trial, uh, and I now want to purchase the device," uh, which is another uh, very strong uh, confidence uh, marker. Uh, so we we decided, based on the, on you know the sum of all that, that we would start to make the the device available, and you know also then that the the pressure we were getting from patients to access the treatment. All in all, we decided it was the right time to do it. Yeah, makes sense. So um, are you now also looking at sort of the results coming back from the field, let's say, since the market launch and to what extent these are consistent with uh, your clinical trial results? So it's a bit probably too early to to say, you know, um, in terms of post-market clinical follow-up data. Uh, The first patients are only starting their or going through their six-week follow-up appointments now. Um so we are tracking that. We have an obligation to track it from a regulatory perspective. So yeah, we're actively we're tracking all that data. We will we're obliged um 
to show that data to the regulators to show that it does correspond and validate what we saw in the in the in the clinical trials if the real world evidence that you collect is does not agree with the clinical trials then your regulator is going to raise the issue with you and um, so that's that's a process that every medical device has to go through, um, both with the FDA and also, you know, under under medical device regulations here in Europe, you have to show that your device continues not only that it's 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 safe and effective in clinical trials, but it also continues to be safe and effective in the market. So yeah, the patients first patients now are in their six week follow up, um, so we're going to track those guys, uh, make sure they're getting on well, um, in terms of making that data available publicly, we won't be able to make that available publicly. So in a clinical trial, you get the consent of the patients to essentially analyze and publish their data. We would need to get the, the patient's consent to make their data available as part of a, a clinical registry or something like that. Uh, we, uh, we do intend to do that, uh, but the, the first patients will not be part of that. As I said, they're free to share their own experiences, but we are bound by you know legal, regulatory, GDPR, all that kind of stuff to to keep their their information as, as strictly confidential. So we don't currently have consent to, to publish that uh, first clinical follow up data, um, but it is something that we intend to do in the future. Are you also planning to conduct more clinical trials in future, or not for the time being? I would say that we're absolutely committed to you know taking the scientific and evidence-based approach um, we will continue to analyze the huge amounts of data that we collected during Tente 1 and Tente 2 as I said with the, the collaborations with Sven and, and Trinity College uh, we will collect all of our post-market clinical follow-up data in some ways that the volume of that we're hoping will be much bigger than than the the clinical trials that we've we've conducted um, However, uh, we will conduct uh, future clinical trials if appropriate. Um, so I guess right now we have enough data to, to be analyzing and kind of getting on with the business of, of improving the treatment. Uh, but we're, as I said, we're completely committed to the scientific and evidence-based approach. So if clinical trials are needed in the future, we'll, we will absolutely conduct them, yes. Let's talk a little bit about the treatment protocol so what are actually sort of the steps that patients go through when they're trying this um, this treatment so can you take us sort of through the first step uh, how is the device calibrated to the individual patient or what happens even before that essentially the um, the device uh, as I said it's we don't it's independent of the tinnitus frequency tone or pitch Um so what's, invite, uh, what's in, involved in calibration is we conduct a pure tone audiometry test. We want to, we're more interested in using the patient's hearing profile to calibrate the device than their, than their tinnitus profile. So we need to know which bands they have hearing loss in so that we can compensate to make sure that they get sufficient auditory stimulation uh, in all of their hearing bands. So that's the first step. We in terms of it, when patients come to to uh, Neuromod Medical here in Dublin, they will get a you know full tinnitus assessment. It it won't be the kind of assessment that they will get at a regular kind of audiology practice um, because we're specialists in the space. Uh, our our clinicians are are specialists with you know approaching twenty years experience now at this point. 
uh, in you know the assessment and treatment of tinnitus so it will be a more rigorous and thorough assessment of their tinnitus their various etiologies um, and and then that's the first thing that will happen and and then the audiologist will decide if the patient um, is suitable for for Lanier so if they are then they will um, well prior to that they will have undergone a, a hearing test anyway a pure tone audiometry test so we will use that information then to to essentially to calibrate the device from an from an auditory stimulation perspective from the the trigeminal nerves uh, stimulation perspective then we calibrate uh, the the level of of electrical stimulation based on the their sensitivity so essentially the patient takes the tongue tip they put it in their mouth and we um we use what's uh, i guess you could consider the somatosensory equivalent of the pure tone audiometry test to to determine their sensitivity um, to electrical stimulation on the tongue. Essentially, we raise the stimulation up and down until we find their, their most comfortable level. Uh, so that's what's, what's involved in the calibration of the device. Thereafter, then, the patient will be, will be shown how to use the device by a fitting specialist. They'll be you know, kind of talked through the various aspects of, of how to manage their treatment and, and care for the device. Uh, and thereafter, then they go home and they self-administer the, the treatment on a daily basis, 30 to 60 minutes per day. And, um, and then they come back into us six weeks later. As I said, in the 10 day 2 study, we saw that switching uh, stimulation strategy at the six-week point drove enhanced uh, clinical effects. Um, so that is, is, as I said, we're an evidence-based com company. So that's, that's what we're doing in terms of the, the treatment regimen. They then go through the same process and they go home and they self-administer their second six weeks of treatment and then they come back into us at the 12-week point and we have another, another assessment on, on how they are getting on with, with Lanier. All right, so to come back to the first step where you calibrate the device to the patient's hearing profile, now uh, uh, standard audiogram uh, measures hearing loss up to eight kilohertz and there's sort of emerging thinking that well actually the hearing loss above uh, 8 kilohertz could be very relevant to tinnitus uh, do you measure that high so it depends um if the patient has hearing loss um in the lower bands we we you know we we just probably measure up as far as 8 kilohertz if they don't have hearing loss in the first 8, eight kilohertz then you know the they, well, it's up to the audiologist, but in some instances, they will test above 8 kilohertz. Um, <clears throat> in some instances, then it may be a case that we, we deliver the auditory st stimulation through an uncompensated, um, uh, in an uncompensated way. Uh, so I guess the, there are limitations to current pure tone audiometry. Um, thus, that diagnostic uh, technology, it, it can't test you know certain frequencies in the in the human hearing range it also can't detect things like synaptopathy and, and hidden hearing loss um, so there are instances where patients don't have a measurable hearing loss where they have tinnitus and they may not have the other underlying etiologies that would would rule them out things like pulsatile etc um, so in, in those instances we we would probably deliver an uncompensated auditory stimulation uh and and um paired with trigeminal nerve stimulation mm -hmm. 
Now, I think so. I think there's one or two weeks between the initial assessment and then the device fitting appointment. And then the patient has to come back at the six week and the 12 week mark. I know some of your customers come from uh, far away, even foreign countries flying in uh, and have complained that this is expensive and inconvenient for them. Are you envisaging any change to this protocol? So I guess the purpose of the initial assessment is to diagnose and recommend um, the treatment for tinnitus. When when we designed these, um, you know, clinical protocols, they were designed with, with patients local to the clinic in mind. Um, our ultimate objective is to make Linear more widely available, you know, throughout initially Europe and, and later the US and, and other jurisdictions. So patients won't have to travel um, to, to, to get their treatment. But our clinical protocols probably won't change because they're based on, as I said, an evidence-based approach from what we saw in the clinical trials. Um, you mentioned the initial assessment. As I said, that's to, to diagnose and recommend for Lanier. Um, Lanier may not be suitable to, for everyone, you know, so the, in which case those patients who are not suited need to be referred on to other specialities, whether that be ENT care or something else. Um, but that that's... That is always the first step in, in any patient's clinical journey is that they will go through that initial assessment and to, to be triaged. But also, I guess, uh, starting linear requires a, a certain investment of time, money and expectations. So we believe that patients should be given the opportunity to fully uh, consider and reflect on that decision and take their time about it. So we inform them of everything during the assessment visit and we, we let them go home and think about that. Um, you know, kind of mull it over in their own heads and then to make the decision whether they're going to proceed with treatment or not. Uh, and so that's that's one of the purposes of the of the one to two week wait. So but unfortunately, we we won't be changing that. I know it's an inconvenience for patients who are traveling um, to overcome that and facilitate those patients. We're actually working extremely hard to bring the device to them so that they don't have to come to the device. Right. So maybe this is also a good moment to um, touch on the inclusion and exclusion criteria, because you said the initial assessment is also to determine whether the patient is eligible for the treatment. Uh, what are some of the reasons that you might need to exclude someone? So I think one thing is is that we probably need to be careful about the terminology. Exclusion criteria are quite often... Are predominantly used in terms of clinical trials. Um, so in a clinical trial, you're, you're trying to test an intervention in a kind of a well-controlled population. So you use very strict inclusion-exclusion criteria. Um, and then, you know, you can extrapolate out from the efficacy that you see within that controlled sample uh, into the wider population. Uh, in terms of products outside of clinical trials, you know, medical products available, um, you talk more in terms of contraindications. So some of the contraindications that would be listed in our literature would be, or in our labeling would be, uh, being pregnant if you have an active implantable device, uh, such as a pacemaker or a cochlear implant, um, having neurological condition that can affect or can lead to a loss of consciousness like epilepsy, um, having open sores or lesions in the mouth, uh, things like that, you know. Um, so the best kind of approach is to see a qualified professional and go through all of that and, and really see if linear is a suitable treatment for the patient. Um, so could uh, severe hearing loss or 
on the other end of the spectrum having no hearing loss at all. Uh, could those be considered contraindications? So again, I don't feel fully qualified to, to, to answer that question. Uh, I, I'd recommend patients see, you know, the, the qualified healthcare professionals, but certainly if they're, you know, if they're, if they can't hear, then, you know, the auditory component of the, of the treatment is not going to be, and, and if we can't compensate for that hearing loss, then it's, well, they're not going to be able to, they're going to be missing one half of the treatment, right? So yes, I guess profound hearing loss might be, you know, a contraindication. And if they have no measurable hearing loss? And no, as I said earlier, if they have uh, no measurable hearing loss and they still have tinnitus and they're not ruled out for other reasons, um, not contraindicated, then then yes, we will treat them. Um, because it is it is something we quite often see is that patients have a what would appear to be a normal hearing profile, notwithstanding the limitations of current. Uh, pure tone audiometry technology to to fully characterize it. So they may have some very high frequency loss. They may have synaptopathy that that can't be detected using pure tone audiometry, but might be detected using more um, detailed kind of speech and noise kind of tests and things like that. So, uh, but if patients have this kind of ostensibly normal hearing profile, yes, we we do we do treat those patients. That makes sense, yeah. And uh, would patients who are very much on the severe end of the spectrum, severely uh, distressed or impacted by their tinnitus, uh, do you treat treat those? Yeah. So I mean, we don't. It's not contraindicated that um, that you know tinnitus severity and loudness is is you know we've no outright contraindications around those for linear. Uh, so. Again, they would have to see the, the healthcare professional, the qualified healthcare professional, who would ultimately make the, the, the final call on whether they are suitable patient or not. As you mentioned, you know, some patients can have other, other things going on that may be, you know, exacerbating the issue, um, or, and tinnitus may, may not be the, 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 the primary issue. And, you know, we do see a lot of patients with comorbidities, particularly patients at the, at the more extreme end, uh, so, but the, the healthcare professional would have to see them make an assessment if tinnitus is the primary problem and, you know, then, yeah, it's, they, they wouldn't be ruled out. Right. Would it be possible to put something on your website or maybe it's already there, I don't know, but uh, about the contraindications so that people can take that into consideration before sort of signing up for the treatment? The online booking assessment is designed to assess whether patients uh, tr seeking treatment with linear have any of the contraindications. Uh, and this is ahead of them booking the, or being booked in for the clinical assessment. So any patients who, I guess, answer honestly and have contraindications, uh, you know, will not be uh, offered clinical assessments. So that's the purpose of the kind of the online booking assessment. And then patients who who don't uh, have the, I guess the the contradictions then or contraindications will be invited for a clinical assessment. Now that's not to say that they will end up being treated with linear. They may have other issues or you know. So it's it's at that point then the clinical assessment needs to be conducted to determine if they should be referred to a different special a specialist. Um, 
or if they are uh, suitable for for linear. Uh, but it's kind of a two step process. But that's the the purpose of the online assessment is to is to make sure that patients. So that we don't waste their time, and I guess that we don't also don't waste the audiologist's time uh, if if uh, if it was never um, viable from the start. I guess. Yeah, makes sense. So um, to sort of go through the next steps of of the treatment. So once they have uh, gone for the assessment and the device fitting, and they start the treatment, uh, I know some people are worried about how loud will the sound in the headphones be because a lot of tinnitus patients have either some form of sound sensitivity or hyperacusis where it actually hurts them. Uh, what can you say about that? I guess the the sound levels will be determined by the hearing tests. You know, typically sound levels are kind of. 50 dB HL uh, for a person with normal or mild hearing loss. For patients with moderate or severe hearing loss, then they can, you know, they're compensated above uh, 5 to 10 dB um, sensation level above their hearing thresholds. But obviously, if patients have sound sensitivity and they can, so that that would be taken into account. So we we do have to, in in those kind of cases, it will be about balancing. The patient's sound sensitivity against making sure we have adequate stimulation in the in the damaged hearing bands. Um, but again, that is one of the the reasons that patients have to see you know a suitably qualified healthcare professional who can you know who's very experienced in 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 treating not only tinnitus patients but also hyperacusis patients and will know how to how to manage that. Right? Can, can patients also choose to a certain extent what types of sounds they hear so if there's a specific sound that comes through the headphones that really irritates their tinnitus can that then be removed for instance um so from the clinical trials we found a one parameter set drove the greatest outcomes uh, so all patients are started with that at six weeks then we the stimulation parameters are changed as i discussed uh, so the the patient can discuss those the different op- options available with their uh, healthcare professional so generally the choice uh, uh, of the second parameter set is made by the treating clinician but they will take in and that's that's based on the clinical knowledge that we have but also um the patient's feedback will will be taken into account this is a bit of a technical question but some uh, technically savvy uh, people out there have commented on the fact that you guys are using bluetooth headphones for the treatment uh, whereas the treatment is based on this uh, very precise millisecond timing between the sounds and the tongue zapping but actually in bluetooth headphones there's some latency in so a kind of delay delayed sound effect Uh, have you guys compensated for that yeah, so we're we're very well aware of the, the latency issues around Bluetooth and um, and the linear device does rely on on you know timing relationships between sound and tongue stimulus. We have taken you know steps, technological steps to ensure that the the relationship is well defined and reliable to maximise the treatment efficacy. Um, so you know we've we've we have one set of Bluetooth hearing or headphones that we use, which are these AKG headphones, and we've we've uh, characterized and compensated for the, the latency in those from a te- uh, with the technological solution. Um, so yeah, and that's that's well understood and, and managed. Yeah. All right. So once the patient is actively using the treatment, are there any sort of do's and don'ts that they need to take into account? 
Uh, so I guess the the healthcare professional, the fitting healthcare professional, will talk the patient through through how the device and how to use it. Um, best practice would be, I guess, to to relax in a quiet, comfortable environment, seat uh, sit upright um, in a comfortable position, and I guess that's that's it. And and then just you know try find somewhere that's quiet free from distraction um you know so that they can commit to their treatment on the on a daily basis so but the the as i said the healthcare professional will talk through that in more detail with the patients and so they're uh, expected to uh, use the device i think twice per day for 30 minutes is that it that's correct yeah so what we're trying to do with linear is, dri- is drive neuroplastic changes in the brain as i said we're trying to disrupt these maladaptive processes that have led to tinnitus and uh, so we're trying to essentially disrupt them with, with and drive positive neuroplastic changes in the brain so the secret to to driving neuroplastic changes in the brain are repetition and consistency so we we don't have any evidence to suggest that two 30-minute sessions are better than one one-hour session or vice versa. What we do have evidence for is that the treatment treatment compliance is very important in achieving clinical benefits, but that's you know just to be expected. I guess if you take your medicine, you're going to get better. And so I guess if patients can be repetitious, doing it at the same time every day, that's great, you know, because the brain is kind of, you know, gets it, it, it recognizes the reputation if not and you've a, a very busy lifestyle then you know so long as you fit you can fit the, the treatment session wherever you have time into your your daily life but uh, on the flip side of repetition then i guess is consistency just to make sure you get consistently get the daily sessions in uh, but repetition and consistency are the absolute key you mentioned that some patients um initially experience some worsening or, or some ver- uh, you know, changes in their tinnitus, uh, what should they do if this happens? So, yeah, so fluctuations in, in, in tinnitus are, you know, um, quite common. They're, they're probably the most commonly reported um, side effect that we see by patients, particularly at the start. Um, as I said, it's, it's kind of to be expected in that, you know, patients one of the most commonly reported, um, I guess, scenarios with, with patients when they develop tinnitus is that it's, it's very intense at the start and then kind of settles down later. And I guess the same is to be expected in terms of treatment than what you will see in, in terms of treatment, given that we're trying to disrupt these neural processes. Um, but, you know, so patients should, you know, stay in contact with their, with their healthcare professional um, and they they will manage that. What we've seen in the clinical trial is that some patients, you know, if they if they pause treatment for for a certain level of time, or if they continue with treatment, whatever they were comfortable with, and their and the healthcare professional is comfortable with, and um, that in the you know the vast majority of cases, actually, in, in I would say all cases, they eventually the these fluctuations settle down and and we don't see long-term continuation of those fluctuations but i guess you know it is it's lanier is approved for prescription and management under a qualified healthcare professional so the the key is to maintain that relationship that the patients remain uh you know under their care and and take their advice and and also then i guess report any such um, 
fluctuations or other adverse events to them. And so once the patient gets to the end of the 12 weeks treatment, uh, do you recommend that they continue to use it? As I said, we did two clinical trials, Tente 1 and Tente 2. Uh, the clinical trial design in both of those was that uh, patients received 12-week treatment and then we followed up with them for 12 months afterwards. Um, now, I guess the we knew from the literature and from our own research and research of, of some of the other kind of scientists that we talked about earlier, that this kind of 12-week treatment window was emerging as as, you know, the as the, the length of time that you needed to see for patients to experience benefits from these type of neuromodulatory interventions. But we equally wanted to determine the sustainability of the benefit post-treatment. So under a kind of very, as I said, in clinical trials, you, you study uh, the effect of an intervention under very controlled um, circumstances. So we said 12 weeks of treatment, 12 months of follow-up, um, so we have not studied what happens if patients continue beyond 12 weeks of treatment. Uh, we've no reason to believe that, you know, that it will cause adverse effects. Um, or, uh, but we are equally on the other side don't have any proof that it will, it will deliver any additional benefit. Um, this is something that we're going to have to study in the post-market clinical uh, follow-up phase. Um, because once patients have the have the device, they are free to continue using it beyond twelve weeks of treatment. Um, so we'll find that out in time, I guess. Um, but it is one of those questions that we are eager to to find out what happens if you continue the treatment for eighteen weeks, twenty four weeks, thirty six weeks, um, uh, and we're going to we're going to track that very closely. I think you already alluded to this previously, but are you planning to further refine? the device, the parameters, the protocol to make it more effective even in future? Yeah, so we did, between Tente 1 and Tente 2, uh, we did refine the, the, the parameters. We, we took the learnings from Tente 1. As I said, we saw a plateau in the second six weeks of treatment. Uh, we believe that that was being, you know, um, or that was happening due to neural uh, habituation or adaptation. So we, we changed the parameters at the, at the six-week point. Um, as I said, some of those changes were imperceptible to patients, so it could only be registered in the nervous system. We saw that it overcame habituation and drove bigger effects. Um, and yes, we will continue to, to um, further our understanding of the effects of the various stimulation parameters. Um, as I said, this is only the start of, of a journey for us. We're wholly committed to, you know, to furthering our understanding of bimodal neuromodulation and, you know, make it in ever-increasing cycles to make it more targeted and more personalized um, for, you know, it's, we, we want to deliver evidence-based treatment options for, for a huge patient group for up to now who've just been kind of let down by the, 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 the world of medicine. So, um, yeah, so we're so started a journey and we will continue to, to research and, and, uh, and try and understand that further. All right, final topic. And thank you for bearing with me so long. Uh, the av availability. Um, so you guys started in Ireland. Um, is the cost of Lanier currently covered by the Irish healthcare system or do you have any plans for that? 
Yeah, unfortunately, it's not. Um, no healthcare system or private insurer currently covers the cost of Lanier, uh, but we are working to prepare. This is, I guess, another one of our many ongoing activities and many, many of the, the things that we're, we're working on at the moment um, is the preparation um, and development of economic arguments to submit for coverage and reimbursement. Um, as I said, it is a huge problem, uh, you know, with with evidence of of enormous, uh, you know, spends, including the USVA, um, who spend over three billion dollars every year. Um, the British Tennis Association uh, commissioned a piece of health economics research and showed that the average annual spend to the NHS in the UK was over 750 million pounds per year on on tinnitus so it's it's you know there's there's lots of evidence there so we're going to have to i guess work together to to really uh, put together strong economic arguments that healthcare insurers and healthcare provider systems should really um, cater for the needs of of tinnitus patients yeah, I think there is a strong argument there, and then there have been several studies pointing to the um, quite significant economic burden that tinnitus poses, uh, not just on the healthcare systems, but also in terms of you know work time lost and and these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, hopefully, good luck with with making that that argument, and it's uh, it's much needed i think that um, we get more treatments covered by our national healthcare systems um so currently you're selling the device in ireland but you're opening a clinic in germany i think you already mentioned that maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and then also about any plans for rolling out in other markets so we're we're working hard to make linear available um you know, through a number of specialist clinical centers in Europe, as I said, um, we talked at multiple points about patients who are traveling to us. Uh, ultimately, we don't want patients to have to travel to access Lanier. We want to bring it to the closest clinical center to them. Um, so we'll, we're opening a, or we're working with a, a specialist center in, in Hanover in Germany. And Lanier will be will be available um, through that centre in the coming months, um, and then we're also in discussions with a number of other um, centres, you know, specialist centres, both in Germany, German-speaking markets, and and some of the other markets as well, Benelux, etc. So we're we're moving closer and closer to making it more widely available, um, and we'll we'll announce the details of these uh, these centers of excellence across Europe on our website and our mailing list so if patients want to be kept up to date uh, with that information they can they can sign up for 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 that can you say anything specifically about which markets might be next a German is definitely next so the German market is next yeah right but after that it, we're looking at more widely in Germany and the German speaking markets and also in the Benelux markets. Um, so you said uh, people shouldn't have to travel ideally to get the device. Uh, is there also some criterion where people who are living in the countries where the device is being marketed are preferred over customers flying in from abroad? Uh, that's not something we we will have influence over. Um, all of these centers will be completely independent of us and governed by their own policies. So, you know... Um, 
and and at Neuromod Medical we don't either. But basically, as patients come through the door, we treat them, we schedule them, and, and treat them. So, is it uh, the case that you currently have a waiting list, and what does that look like? There's definitely a waiting list. It's uh, it's pretty significant, um, but we're we're hoping to expand capacity at Neuromod Medical uh, very soon. Um, and also then, uh, as we open, you know, extra centers across Europe, we're hoping that we'll be able to cater for that demand. So I guess we'd, we'd just ask patients to be patient, that, um, that we're well aware that they, you know, that they're of, of their needs and that we are working extremely hard to, to ensure that we can bring the um, linear treatment to them as, as soon as possible. Are you also planning to expand Neuromod in terms of staffing? Because you said uh, one of the things that is hard to keep up with is public communication, for instance. Um, do you plan to hire more people? Yeah, so we just um, secured uh, an 8 million euro investment from uh, our existing investors, Fountain Healthcare Partners and Muffin Investments. And also from new investors, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Creos Capital. So that will be used to um, to fund European expansion, which will we're going to uh, increase our, our workforce, um, which will hopefully then enable us to accelerate uh, making the, the product available to, to patients in Europe. All right. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to tell us about your plans for the future? Um, no, I think we've we've pretty much covered everything uh, up to now. This has been a, a pretty comprehensive uh, interview. I think we've we've uh, we've definitely gone into a lot of detail, but it's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a, a bit of a marathon, um, but hopefully informative for people. And um, thank you so much for taking a couple of hours out of your no doubt very busy schedules uh, much appreciated yeah no absolutely no problem um i thought it was going to take longer when i when i initially saw the, the almost 70 questions i went oh, <laughs> oh lord if we spend three to five minutes on each we're going to be here for five six hours you know it's been pretty efficient you know so very efficient yeah. indeed yeah all right then i won't keep you any longer um thank you so much uh ross yeah no problem hazel thank you <laughs>